Hello then and you are so welcome to Passing the Baton Series 2 and this is the one for March the 28th 2009 entitled I Have Called You Friends. While I was preparing this I had uh, quite a, a degree of excitement uh, not the least of which was that I dictated this whole CD and then lost a lot um, but it's no good talking about the flesh and the spirit if you don't respond in the right way is it? Um, I'm really rather glad that I had that delay because God causes all things to work to profit. Because while I was waiting this morning before the Lord, He quickened to me Psalm 25 verses 12 and 14. What man is he that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And this is reading now from a little book called Through the Psalms with Derek Prince. You'll find that I actually quote from a, a number of writers because I feel it's important that these men went before us and we need to hear and heed the things that they've said. There's a distillation of wisdom in them. And he says this, When God sets out to teach a man, he chooses his students on the basis of character, not intellectual ability or academic degrees or social standing. He looks for an inner attitude of the heart towards himself, reverent submission and respect. Furthermore, God sets the curriculum. He teaches such a man in the way that he, God, shall choose. Often this is not the way we would choose for ourselves. We might incline towards themes of prophecy or revelation that seem profound, whereas God's curriculum might focus on what is humble and down to earth, service, sacrifice, faithfulness. For those who submit to God's instruction there is a wonderful reward. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. In human relationships we share our secrets only with those that we trust. Likewise when God shares his secrets with us it's proof that we've earned his trust, it's our certificate of graduation. This is beautifully in illustrated in the relationship of Jesus to his disciples. After he'd put them through three years of rigorous tr discipline he told them I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. John 15:15. 15, 15. First, Jesus himself learned from the father through his perfect submission to him. Then he in turn passed on all he had learned from the father to those who submitted in like manner to him. God still chooses his students on the same basis. Neither his requirements nor his curriculum have changed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will put in us such hearts of submission that we choose to submit to your lordship, to your choosing, to your teaching, to your way, and that, Father, that we might, as we hear this teaching, that, Lord, we might agree with you about who we are, where we are and what we need to do. Father we bless you in Jesus mighty name but we want to be students that in your time you will share your secrets with.
because we're so aware, Father, that it's only in the holy place, in the intimate place of hearing your heartbeat, that things will be moved into kingdom and that we will see your kingdom come. So we ask for hearts ready, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as a body in the charismatic movement particularly, we have majored on blessing, what God wants to be for us, how he wants to bless us, how he wants to provide for us. All these are true, but there are disciplines of the Christian walk which are vital to our growth into maturity that have been overlooked and in some ways neglected. If we do not rectify the situation, we will find ourselves lopsided, weighted on the side of the love of God and neglecting the holiness of God and his demands upon us as a people. He desires that we should be a people separate, holy and declaring his majesty, living a lifestyle which proclaims we are different. The cross always offends our way of thinking and acting. The message of the cross is a constant message. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a personal message and we ignore it at our peril. Forgiveness is not an option. We live a lifestyle of forgiveness. Forgive as the Father forgave you, Ephesians 4:32. Death to self is a daily choice. Living to please God is our only option. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Reformation is coming to the church and it will be through the evidence of Christ in us, the hope of glory in our hearts, the will of the Father being worked in and through us, and Christ being formed in us. The cross is an eternal, ever-present challenge to our worldly, fleshly desires. So today, although the title is I Have Called You Friends, what we are really going to be looking at is what qualifies us for friendship with God and we may be in for some surprises. Sonship is automatic. You have been born again from above into the family of God. This is not in question. Coming into friendship you will see is not automatic. Acts 2 verse 42 says this in the Amplified Bible. And they steadfastly persevered devoting themselves constantly to the instruction and fellowship of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, including the Lord's Supper and prayers. A question to start you off, are you continuing? Are you a continuer? Are you persevering? And if you are, are you steadfast in that continuance and perseverance? Sometimes today too much is made of the initial decision to take Christ as our Saviour and Lord and great excitement ensues to the detriment of the clear teaching of Scripture which is that this is just the beginning of our journey. Steadfast, continuance, perseverance is necessary. Steadfastness, and by that I mean determination and faithfulness, is required when we're under attack mentally or physically. And the story of those early Christians in the book of Acts is a story of faith under fire. These early believers turned to Christ with a full understanding that it would cost them everything. As I've already said, and I want to emphasize this, what I'm saying does not set aside the love and grace of God, which is all yours 
through the finished work of Calvary. What follows is what constitutes our part in the transaction. A.W. Tozer puts it this way in his book, Born After Midnight. Christ calls men to carry a cross. We call them to have fun in his name. He calls them to forsake the world. We assure them that if they but accept Jesus, the world is their oyster. He calls them to suffer. We call them to enjoy all the bourgeois comforts modern civilization affords. He calls them to self-abnegation and death. We calls, call them to spread themselves like the green bay tree or perchance even become stars in a pitiful fifth-rate religious zodiac. He calls them to holiness. We call them to a cheap and tawdry happiness that would have been rejected with scorn by the least of the Stoic philosophers. Friendship with God has a price tag. It will cost you all you have and all you hold dear in this world. Everyone wants it, no one wants to pay the price. Do you still want friendship with God? Salvation is free. Friendship is earned by faithfulness of service and obedience to his commands. Friendship with God is not a light thing, and it's not automatic. Friendship means being face to face with a holy God with whom we have to do. A man called Binny put it this way in his hymn, Eternal Light. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure that soul must be. When placed within thy searching light, it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. Today may challenge your theology, it may challenge you personally, and I make no apologies for this. It's time for us, the Bride of Christ, to become all he requires of us. God has done his part. It's time for us to do our part. This is the church's final hour, her most glorious hour. If you can take this teaching, it will prepare you for your finest hour. We cannot live any longer in crossless Christianity. The cross must be applied to our lives and applied effectively in order that we may die and Christ may live in and through us. It is possible, and indeed it is God's desire, that we live fully in resurrection life in this life. So firstly we will be looking at what the flesh versus the spirit looks like as it works out in our lives. Many of us are aware that this is the battle that gives us the most problems and conflict in our Christian walk. Secondly, we will be looking at the rewards laid up for us and why they're there and how we get them. Thirdly, we will be examining the whole question of what is meant by being a friend of God and the qualifications for this. So we're in for a three-course meal. I'm going to start with two contrasting spheres, those of the flesh versus the spirit. I'm going to define what I mean by these terms in order that you're in no doubt and in order that you may see where you are and where you spend most of your time, in the flesh or in the spirit. As I was preparing this, my heart was heavy and I was inquiring of the Lord and he said to me, a doctor must first diagnose the sickness before he can prescribe the remedy. So today could be diagnostic for you. 
is intended that you might fully recognize the sickness from which you may be suffering and make a choice whether or not to take the remedy. If you're already living the crucified life, you can sit back or go and have a coffee, as Graham Cook would say. If you stay and keep listening, I should take it that you need this. So the first thing we need to look at before we address flesh versus spirit is our focus. Sin has been atoned for. Jesus dealt with it on the cross. So the problem we are left with is self. Egocentricity or self-absorption as our focus. The cross in our life is not sickness that we have to bear as has so often been taught. The cross takes the you out of you. It is our will gets, which gets crossed out. Someone once said it's the place where our will and God's will cross. John the Baptist encapsulated it like this in John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. This is a process. But first, a decision to allow him to increase needs to be made. He will not force this on you. Salvation is free. Sonship is given. Friendship is earned. Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow that a time could ever be when I let the Saviour's pity plead in vain and proudly answered, All of self, none of thee. That's an old hymn too, and it ends up, All of thee and none of me. Brilliant process. Because the cross is rarely preached or talked in these days, we've become self-centred, self-absorbed and lukewarm believers who need to fall in love all over again with Jesus. Self-centredness leads to lukewarmness and spiritual blindness. We just cannot see the things in the spirit because we are stuck in the mind of the flesh, which Romans tells us is hostile to God. Here now, Romans 8. Uh, 1 to 8 in the New American Standard Bible. It's headed up Deliverance from Bondage. Therefore, there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit for the mind set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it's not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please God you may have noticed I emphasized how many times it says set mind set mindsets how does it affect me is the only question the flesh usually ever asks. What about me? 
Did you know it's easy to fall in love but so very difficult to stay in love? Like the church at Ephesus, we have left our first love, not lost it, left it. What did we do when we were first in love? We were excited. We wanted to spend time with him. Everything about him attracted us. But now we're like a love-starved bride who looks for satisfaction elsewhere. We have everything but nothing because we have fallen out of love. I just don't love him anymore. Jesus had some things to say too to the Laodicean church. The reason he did this is because lukewarmness causes spiritual blindness. In his great love for them he warns them to repent, to change their minds. The church at Laodicea thought they were doing so well, always a characteristic of spiritual blindness. Beware, beware, if you think you're doing well. But God said, I have this to say to you. Revelation 3, 17-19, New International Version You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. He's saying, I used to have fellowship with you, but now I'm on the outside of your heart again. I'm knocking at the door of your heart because I want to come in again and fellowship with you. He's pleading with them to return to him. We would call it repentance. Repentance is a military term coming from the root to do an about turn. Do you need to do an about turn today? God is calling you in love back to himself. Only he can change your heart. Your part is to recognise that it needs to be changed and give him permission to do it any way he chooses. Don't try to put conditions on it. Just surrender to his great love for you. Without intimacy, any relationship becomes an endurance. Who wants their husband or wife to say, well, I've stuck it out for 40 years with you, I'll be glad when it's over. If we're looking forward to anything other than being with him when we leave this present world, our focus is off-centre. If we've ceased to enjoy our communion with Jesus, that's what we're saying. This is an endurance test and I'm going to endure if it kills me, <clears throat> excuse me, and it probably will. Beloved, that's not relationship. It's one thing to be married, or in our case, engaged to be married, and a totally different thing to be happily married, or in our case, happily and excitedly engaged to be married. A bride's usually excited about her bridegroom and her forthcoming wedding. Ask one. Religion without love is the meanest thing on earth. God desires so much that we return to our first love. He desires so much to reveal himself to us. If what has been said already has struck a chord with you, just spend a few moments now talking to him about it. We can't go on to discover what friendship with him means 
if we don't walk with him in loving communion today? So the key to a victorious and abundant life is to fall in love with Jesus, to put him first before everything and everyone else. To fall in love with the person of Jesus, not just what he can do for you, not just fulfilling your ministry, loving him for who he is. And it comes before serving him. The Holy Spirit loves to help you do this. All you need to do is ask him. It's in his job description. He will speak of me. Jesus says it in John 16:13 and 14, New American Standard Bible now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Enjoying God is a choice. We choose to enjoy him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Catechism. Firstly then, let's look at this issue of the flesh versus the spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13-16, reading now from the New International Version, This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct, instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 to chapter 3, verse 3 speaks of three different types of people. The first is the natural man, the second is the spiritual man, and the third is the carnal man. The natural man, first mentioned, is the unregenerate man. He's devoid of the spirit and has no understanding or appreciation of the gospel. The second man is a spiritual man. He's a man of integrity and keeps his word. The law of the spirit of life rules as he displays the love of God and the fruit of the spirit. Mark this one. Reading on into chapter 3, we come to the third category, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? The third man here described is the carnal or fleshly man. This man is regenerated, he is born again, but he's living like an unbeliever. His ways are childish, he's immature, lives on his feelings and emotions rather than in the spirit. He is willful, stubborn and rebellious.
And when I talk about man, I mean mankind, including ladies, not just men. There will be times when this man will display fits of rage, be jealous and self-seeking, and he might even participate in or initiate gossip and strife. It's likely that he often brings division instead of unity, as he's ruled by self-will and his emotions. He will be marked by impatience and is hasty in his actions and plans. He cannot wait for God, but must have instant gratification. Lord, give me patience and can I have it now? He will probably refuse to pray about the detail in his life, saying that God gave him free will. He surely did, a name for absolutely nothing, as it is free only to disobey God. God cannot and will not anoint the flesh. Exodus 30 verse 32 says this, Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall you make any like it, after the composition of it. It is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. The flesh cannot be anointed, it must be crucified. As Joyce Meyer would say, not sanctified but mortified. The characteristics of the flesh we need to look at. What then are the characteristics of the flesh? We've seen some, but here are some more. The flesh is weak. It has cracks or weaknesses that will show up during pressures or storms. The flesh begin thing, begins things but cannot sustain them. It gives up. Unfinished projects, dreams, visions, things half done and left. The flesh always gives up when things become difficult. The flesh always has its own plan. It is impatient, independent and prideful. When we allow the flesh free reign, when we allow it to rule, destruction will soon follow. Listen to this, Romans 8, 6 in the Amplified Bible. Now the mind of the flesh which is sense and reason without the Holy Spirit is death. Death that comprises all the miseries arising from sin both here and hereafter. But the mind of the Holy Spirit is life and soul peace, both now and forever. In addressing the Corinthian believers, Paul says, You're infants, mere children. You're not spiritual, but worldly. A little further on in the same letter, he says, in 1 Corinthians 13:11, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Childishness, then, is one of the marks of immaturity, spiritually speaking. Another is impatience. The immature believer will seek to cut corners. Becoming childlike is our aim. God has said it, we believe it. That settles it, as Smith Wigglesworth used to say. Childlike trust in the Father who does all things well, whether we understand or not. When we're immature believers, we serve our emotions and feelings rather than God. Just because we feel something does not mean it is right or God's will for us. Emotions are probably enemy number one for us. Being led by our feelings will get us into big trouble. Our feelings, our emotions are part of us, 
but they need to come under the benevolent control of the Holy Spirit. The believers on the road to Emmaus are a classic example of what happens when we're led by our emotions and what we think and perceive in any given situation. If you read Luke 24, you can see how the disciples were cast down because they had hoped for one thing and the reverse had happened. They were operating in their feelings. Their perception was soulish, not spiritual, and Jesus had to open their eyes to see from a spiritual perspective. From what's already been said, can you establish whether you are mostly spiritual or soulish? Are you living in the flesh or the spirit? Many of us would say, mm, yes and no, like the okey-cokey, in, out, in, out, shake it all about. Sometimes we manage to stay in the spirit and sometimes we lapse into the flesh. So on no other foundation can any man build very familiar scripture. This may not seem relevant to the subject of friendship with God, but first the foundation has to be laid because upon no other foundation than the death and resurrection of Christ and the believer's new life in him can we build. If you have a flaw in your foundations, you cannot build. If the problem is not correctly diagnosed, no remedy will be effective. When a handyman lays a floor, the first row of tiles must be straight or it'll get worse right the way across the floor. It's the same with us. If we do not have a right foundation in God, what we subsequently build will be lopsided and out of true, and will eventually have to be ripped up and relayed. So it's well worth taking time to examine our foundations. Let's look a little bit more closely now then at these two contrasting groups or spheres the ones that we've already looked at, the spiritual man and the carnal man. The first step is acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. It's our foundational brick. At the cross, the believing sinner makes a clean-cut separation from the old sphere, the old life, and all that pertains to it, and enters into a totally new life with a new DNA. There is an exchange. Sometimes herein lies the key. There has been no exchange, no conversion, no turning or understanding of repentance, which is to have a change of mind. There's been no consecration or dedication to God. There's been no surrender to his lordship. We have simply received salvation but let go of nothing. We still reserve the right to make our own decisions and live our lives as we choose. If our life is unsurrendered God would say to us I will be Lord of all or I won't be Lord at all. There first needs to be an understanding and then a commitment to hold nothing back from him. Without this, we will not come fully into the good plans that God has for us, and we're condemned to live our lives in some measure of immaturity and carnality. And the friendship with God which we desire will elude us. 
Our will must be dedicated to God or there will be no submission to authority, earthly or divine. There will only be rebellion, recalcitrance and stubbornness. We'll certainly not be able to embrace the cross in our lives but we'll run from it. We saw earlier, didn't we, that the mind of the flesh will not submit to the law of God. Indeed cannot. Romans 8, 6. These two groups then, these two spheres, the carnal and the spiritual, are clearly named and defined in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.22 in the New King James Version says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. God has dealt with the whole human race through two representative men, Adam and Jesus Christ. Adam is the source of all in the old sphere. He's the root and branch. Christ is the source of all in the new sphere. By Adam, sin entered into the world. By Jesus Christ, salvation came to all men. The sinner is in Adam. The believer is in Christ. In Adam, we are what we are by nature. In Christ, we are what we are by grace. In Adam, we have the life received through human generation or reproduction from our parents and their forebears. In Christ, we have the life received through divine regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We now have a choice where we live. This is where, where your will comes in. If it isn't surrendered to God, you'll have a constant conflict and you'll probably be blaming the devil for everything. 1 Peter 1, 1.23 says this For you have been born again not from perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God good seed in Adam man was ruined through the first man's sin in Christ man is redeemed through the second man's sacrifice in Adam, all is sin and darkness and death. In Christ, all is righteousness, light and life. When we're born again, the I in sin must become an O, as in sun. That proud I must yield. These two spheres are the exact antithesis of each other, so that life in one precludes and eclipses life in the other. Every human being is in one of these two spheres and his relationship to Jesus Christ determines which one it is. So let's look at the characteristic mark of each sphere. They can be readily distinguished because each one's got a characteristic mark. Romans 8.5 tells us this, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. There it is. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Romans 8, 9. But you're not in the flesh if the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. The mark of the old sphere then is the flesh and of the new the Spirit. 
In other words, the sinner in Adam is in the flesh and the believer in Christ is in the spirit. The flesh and the spirit are mutually irreconcilable enemies in totally diverse camps. We really do need to understand this because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They cannot inherit the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15.50 tells us this. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Jesus came to give us new life, and that new life is in the spirit, not in the flesh. John 3, 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And just to reinforce this, Galatians 5, 17, in the Amplified Bible. For the desires of the flesh are opposed to the Holy Spirit and the desires of the spirit are opposed to the flesh, godless human nature, for these are antagonistic to each other, continually withstanding and in conflict with each other, so that you are not free, but are prevented from doing what you desire to do. We became flesh through the sin of Adam. The flesh is the whole natural man, spirit, soul and body alienated from God. It's the life of the nature, whether good or bad, received through our parents. It's all that I am as a son of Adam. It's variously described as carnal, the old nature, the old sin nature, the old man or simply the flesh. So when Paul says in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. He's recognising his own old nature and its inability to do anything that is pleasing to God. We've only to look at Cain and Abel to see this. Cain offered a sacrifice from the fruit of the field. Abel, a sacrifice from the flock. God had ordained what was acceptable to him, a blood sacrifice. But Cain was not about to obey and did what he thought was best and it was unacceptable to God. As a result of Abel's sacrifice being acceptable and his being rejected, he rose up in anger against his brother and killed him. Cain himself was not unacceptable to God, but what he did was unacceptable. God warned him that sin was crouching at the door and desired to have him, but he should master it. He did not listen and gave what he thought best, but it didn't fulfil the Lord's commandment in the matter. Life for life, the life is in the blood. To cover your sin, Cain, I require blood and innocent blood at that. The flesh always knows best and it will not be told, in this instance even by God himself. We fall as a race into one of two camps, we are either the seed of Cain or Abel, we are either of the flesh or the spirit. 
You can trace this through the Bible time and time again. Jacob and Esau, Saul and David, even Saul before he became Paul, persecuting the church. One of the, one the man of the flesh, the other the man of the spirit, and the flesh warring against the spirit with murderous intent. The fruit of our labour and our sweat is never acceptable to God. It must always be the fruit which comes from the inspiration and initiation of the Holy Spirit. God sees nothing good in the flesh, even the very best which we can produce in our natural state. He rejects. We are accepted only in the Beloved. He doesn't reject us, but what we produce, our fleshly, sweaty efforts. God is Spirit. And we can only relate to him through the Spirit. Paul's estimate of the flesh in Romans 7 is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He tells us that through his parents and his genealogy he was richly endowed. His flesh was educated, cultured, moral, even religious, yet it was wholly unacceptable to God. And in Philippians 3, 4-9, he tells us that he counts all of that as nothing compared with the excellency of knowing Christ. So we see clearly that God rejects not Paul himself but his works, his efforts to be blameless and acceptable without the atoning blood of Jesus. Philippians 3, 4-9 in the NIV says this, and this is Paul's boast, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. In effect, he's saying, in the past I believed that my own good works of righteousness could get me in touch with God, keeping the letter of the law, performing all the rituals commanded. But now I know that nothing but the sacrifice of my Lord Jesus on the cross avails for me. Here is a man who straddled the old and new covenants. He was fully conversant with the sacrifices that had to be made, bulls and goats, to cover sin, perfectly right for the old. But when the new came, the writer to the Hebrews says, in Hebrews 10.4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It doesn't say it helps. It says blood of bulls and goats, impossible. Fleshly effort, zilch. Out with the old, in with the new. So with us. In the New Testament, 
the Old Testament, sorry, the priest performed the cleansing rituals required by God for fellowship with him. In the New Testament, the veil is rent. We have access by the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit into the presence, Hebrews 9.14. Paul saw the new and instantly the old was rubbish to him. He counted it dung, some versions say. In the same way for us, when we believe, out with the old, it's rubbish, in with the new, clean slate, new life, new start. In Romans 8, he expands on this. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Clearly then, God refuses to deal with the flesh on any terms for it is irretrievably separated from him. Now let's look at the reign of the old man. In each of these spheres, the spiritual and the flesh is a sovereign who purposes to rule with undivided authority. The sovereign, the king of the old sphere, is the old man or the flesh. The very core of the flesh is the sinful corrupt nature from which Jesus delivers us. It is a deep dyed traitor that hates everything that God loves and loves everything God hates. Through the fall Adam allowed self to usurp or commandeer the throne of man's personality and self has held it in its possession, control and use ever since. Every child born into the world is born with King Self on the throne, His Majesty the baby. The old man on the throne determines what the whole life from centre to circumference shall be. His evil desires become evil deeds. His unholy aspirations are translated into unholy acts. His unrighteous character manifests itself in unrighteous conduct and his ungodly will is expressed in ungodly works. The root sin bears fruit in sins. We sin because we are sinners, we are not sinners because we sin. We bear a stain that can only be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Sin clings to us like leprosy. The vast majority of Christians stop short in their experience of the blessings of salvation with the forgiveness of past sins and with the hope of heaven in the future. But their present is a 40-year wilderness experience of futile wanderings, never enjoying peace and rest and never arriving in the promised land. Few of us are either aware or willing to admit that the old man sits firmly still on the throne of our lives. Despite our songs about Jesus being on the throne, the old despot, undisputed, rules and reigns. 
there is almost total ignorance of and indifference to the subtle and insidious workings of that old eye. If the grosser works of the flesh are absent from the life, adultery, fornication, stealing, lies and the like, the individual rests in complacent ease with a sense of their own goodness. Failing to understand how God sees the more refined and less openly manifested sins of the heart and attitudes. The Pharisees were exactly the same. Jesus called them whited sepulchres, inside which were dead men's bones. Few of us are actually willing to say, I know that in me dwells no good thing. Let's just draw a portrait of this old man and see if we're not forced to accept God's estimate of him. The foundation of life in the natural man is self-will, self-love, self-exaltation and self-confidence. Upon this foundation is built self-protection, that's a big one, self-centeredness, self-assertion, self-conceit, self-indulgent, self-pleasing, self-seeking, self-pity, self-defence, self-justification, self-reliance, self-righteousness, and there are many more, and so on. This is the material out of which the building is produced. In other words, I'm my own God. I make the decisions round here. I am on the throne. There's not one of us who could hand on heart say that as we look at our own lives there isn't one or more of these manifestations of self there to a greater or lesser extent. We know what a hydra-headed monster that old eye is. Hydra, hydra incidentally was a monster in Greek mythology which had nine heads. When one head was cut off another grew instantly in its place. That sounds about right. It was killed by Heracles according to legend. Martin, Martin Luther knew it and he said I'm more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me that great Pope self. We ourselves say do we not we have met the enemy and he is us if we're honest with ourselves at all. With Paul many of us at this point may be wailing, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That's Romans 7.24. But then in Romans 7.25 he says, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is stating it used to be like this for me before I was born again by the Spirit. Before I surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ. And then he goes on to say, Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus for his deliverance from the power of that sinful nature. There is, he states, a remedy. I don't have to live like this anymore. The reason for all the foregoing is that you may know and understand and appropriate the finished work of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. God has already declared what he has done with this usurper. He died on the cross with Jesus. He was crucified with Christ, past tense. The message puts it like this. Absolutely brilliant. 
Romans 8 in the message. The solution is life on God's terms. That's a good statement to start with. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid of sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now, what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own, obsessed end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he's doing and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who hasn't welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus bringing you alive to himself. God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, What's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is and we know who we are, father and children, 
and we know where we're going and when we know we are going to get what's coming to us an unbelievable inheritance brilliant translation says it all God has dealt drastically with the old Adam he crucified him with Christ that beloved is the gospel the good news Jesus has dealt with the old sin nature so what's our part we must consent to the fact of the death of that old man we must give our approval to his demise agree with God about him and dance on his coffin and bid him farewell there can be no reservations no sympathy for him no holding back the whole eye must be reckoned to have been crucified God asks you to put your signature to this statement Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ Oswald Chambers I think it is who asks if you've ever been to your own white funeral I well remember going to mine dancing a fandango on the coffin lid and ignoring please to take the lid off A.W. Tozer puts it this way in his book The Pursuit of God Self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us it can only be moved in spiritual experience never by mere instruction we may as well try to instruct leprosy out of our system there must be a work of God in destruction before we're free we must invite the cross to do its deadly work within us the cross is rough and it's deadly but it is effective there comes a moment when its work is finished and the suffering victim dies after that is resurrection glory and power and the pain is forgotten for the joy that the veil is taken away and we've entered into actual spiritual experience in the presence of the living God I have been crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ that lives in me and again he says in the same book a spiritual kingdom lies all about us enclosing us embracing us all together within reach of our inner selves waiting for us to recognize it God himself is here waiting our response to his presence this eternal world will come alive to us the moment we begin to reckon upon its reality we have to reckon on its reality by faith death is the gateway to life co-crucifixion opens the door to co-resurrection identification with Christ in his death and burial is but the beginning of our union with him in endless life deliverance from Adam and entrance into Christ demands the dethronement of self friendship with God can never be achieved while I am on the throne 
Graham Cook, in his book, Towards a Powerful Inner Life, puts it like this. God breaks into our lives at salvation, causing a massive battle within us. <clears throat> Excuse me. The spirit is boosted and begins to push the soul to express love for God, ourselves and other people. The soul hates this, for it is no longer in full control. We are born again and our spirit is revitalized. The soul must submit, submit to that spirit man or it will suffer one of two fates. It either becomes carnal or flesh. The flesh described is the sinful appetite of the body. Anything we do for self-gratification, the body has its own appetites. This physical body of mine has appetites, it gets hungry. So what we do for self-gratification are things like this. Sex, drugs, overeating, sensual pleasure, anything that comes in to the pleasure of the flesh. Carnality described is the sinful appetite of the soul or what happens when we live our lives through the soul and not the spirit. He goes on to say, carnality is about us wanting to live for God but refusing to relinquish control to him on how that looks. We become religious and pharisaical, living to please ourselves but calling it godliness. As always, Graham sums it up in a couple of sentences. Beloved, friendship with God will never be achieved while I'm on the throne. God doesn't do timeshare. Sunday's for him and the rest of the week for yourself. So is it possible to live the exchanged life, this resurrection life in Christ all day, every day? And the answer lies in how we stand, how we position ourselves before God. The Holy Spirit has an agenda for us. He wants us to come under his benevolent control as he reveals Christ to us and forms Christ in us. As we've said, this is not about you putting yourself to death. Self-crucifixion never works. Trying to do this makes you preoccupied with yourself, the very thing that we're trying to get away from. Living in Christ Jesus makes us preoccupied with him. Look away to him. In becoming alive to God, we automatically become dead to ourselves. What you focus on, you become. So what's your focus today? We started with that. Is it yourself or him? Your answer shows where you're living right now. You can make your own diagnosis and I'm about to give you the remedy. The message again, Romans 6, 6 to 11. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin miserable life. No longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. 
When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. So you're dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. Take up your cross, Jesus said, because I desire to set you free from yourself. Free from extreme self-interest and self-preservation and everything else that bears the prefix. The moment you move from self and self-preservation to self-denial, you move from Satan's kingdom to God's. From darkness to light. And here I am not talking about ascetic practices, fasting and denial of the flesh in that way. That's just fleshly effort. I'm talking about your mental processes, the way you think, the way everything is centred on how it affects me. As Joyce Mayer would say, what about me, what about me, what about me? Some of you have heard her little robot story. God woke her up one morning and she heard herself saying, what about me, what about me? God said to her, that's because that's all you're ever saying, Joyce, what about me? You're in a process. The decision to believe what God has said about co-crucifixion will take you on to another battleground because the enemy is not unmindful of your choices and he'll do everything in his power to keep you soulish and carnal and in the flesh, in the skin again. Because that is his sphere of influence in your life. He can only operate through your soul, through the ground that you give him. You can only be lunch for him if you lay the table and invite him. The good news is that he can't predict what you're going to do if you are not controlled by extreme self-interest. You know, don't you, that the best agents for Satan are carnal Christians. He knows what he's doing when he's dealing with the flesh and he can stir up the desires of the mind and the appetites of the flesh any time he likes. The whole issue then when you're born again is one of rulership. Self-rule or spirit rule, you get to choose where you'll live. But if you're to come into what God has for you, the first thing is to make the decision not to live any more for your fleshly, carnal appetites, but to move into the life in the spirit because whoever you align yourself with will rule you. If it's your old sin nature, Satan rules. If it is your new DNA, Jesus rules. You get to choose every single moment of every single day where you live. You choose. Philippians 3, 8-10 in the New King James Version. Yet indeed I count <coughs> excuse me, all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness 
which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Having set out his credentials, Paul categorically states that he's counted them all as losses, made his decision because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. This is the language of one who knows he's loved and whose motives for living were controlled by that love. In verse 10 he adds the other crucial dimension that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and he repeats this in verse 11 which comes over rather curiously that if possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's not expressing here a hope of resurrection after his physical death but rather that whilst in his mortal body he may live in everything Jesus had died to obtain for him. Resurrection life now. The abundant life now. In other words, he's saying, because Jesus has passed through death for sin on my behalf and has been raised to a state where he could no more be tempted or have any further need to atone for sin, so I should accept that as a fact for myself in him. He's saying, do not allow sin to have lordship over you because it has been dealt with. He then locates the central and key factor involved in outworking this truth. Abandon yourself. Yield yourself to God and sin will no longer have any dominion over you. Romans 6.14 For sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace. He isn't teaching sinless perfection but choice, which leads to maturity. Again, he repeats the same thing in Philippians 3, 14. New King James Version now. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the upward call? Resurrection life, now. It's part of our inheritance in Christ to experience in the normal course of life freedom from the power of sin over us and the joy and peace that this freedom brings with it. Okay, so now let's look at the believer's rewards. 